Welcome to Your Child's Brain, a podcast series produced by Kennedy Krieger Institute with assistance from WIPR. I'm Dr. Brad Schlager, pediatric neurologist and president and CEO of Kennedy Krieger Institute. Over the past several episodes of this podcast, we've talked about rare pediatric onset neurogenetic diseases and the important role that research plays in this arena and the need for additional research opportunities so that we can continue to advance our knowledge and create effective treatments. There are more than 7,000 rare diseases, the preponderance of which affect the developing nervous system with more than 200 new rare diseases identified each year. It is fitting that we talk about this topic this month as February is recognized nationally as Rare Disease Month. It is so important to underscore that advancement in this area is not possible without the input of our clinicians and our families. That's why I'm so excited today to be joined by one of my colleagues at Kennedy Krieger, Dr. Jacqueline Harris. Dr. Harris is a pediatric neurologist and researcher at Kennedy Krieger and an assistant professor in pediatrics, neurology, and genetics at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Dr. Harris's area of research and expertise includes many rare diseases that we see at Kennedy Krieger. In addition, we are also joined by Ms. Abby Tower. Abby is a parent of Bay, a very social young girl who has a rare disease called CAT6A. So welcome, Jackie and Abby. And Jackie, just starting out with you, you specialize in neurodevelopmental disorders, specifically those with a genetic cause or some aspect. Let's first talk about how common or rare these kinds of pediatric neurological diseases are. Rare diseases are uh, are by nature uh, individually rare, but they are collectively common. So it's estimated that about one in every 10 people in the United States suffers from some sort of rare disease. Pediatric neurodevelopmental disorders are in and of themselves relatively common. Intellectual disability, which is the area of expertise that I specialize in, occurs in about 1% of the general population. However, the genetic causes of intellectual disability range. So the most common genetic causes of intellectual disability, like say Down syndrome, occurs in about one in every 700 births, whereas the most rare conditions uh, don't even have an estimate of their prevalence because they are so rare. So for example, CAT6A syndrome, which we're going to be talking about today, has about somewhere in the range of 300 to 400 known cases in the world. And so no prevalence estimate is yet available. So we've used this term, a genetic cause or a neurogenetic disease. Let's just take a moment to talk about what does it mean to have a genetic reason for a neurodevelopmental disorder? In this case, when we're talking about genetic causes of intellectual disability or neurogenetic diseases, we are talking about a single identifiable genetic cause for the person's intellectual disability or other neurodevelopmental disorder. Many neurodevelopmental disabilities are heritable in that they come from multifactorial genetic and familial causes. In this case, what we're talking about is a single identifiable cause that is 
inherited through the genes or occurs newly in the child through their genes that causes their neurodevelopmental disability. So diving a little bit deeper, you know, you are an international expert in a certain kind of genetic disorder called Mendelian disorders of the epigenetic machinery. So can you help listeners understand what that name means and, and how these kinds of disorders are different from other genetic disorders? Absolutely. Mendelian disorders of the epigenetic machinery mean disorders that are inherited in a Mendelian fashion, meaning they can be passed along from parent to child in some way, whether that be recessive, meaning you need two copies, or dominant, meaning you need one copy. Although most of these cases occur de novo, meaning they occur newly in the patient and are not actually passed down. They are disorders of the epigenetic machinery because they are disorders that affect proteins that control the ability of many other genes to be made into proteins, which at the end of the day is the primary function of genes to create proteins that then carry out the effect in the cells that we see in the body. So can you name a, a few of these kinds of disorders that you studied and, and treated uh, that, that have that fit into this category of Mendelian disorders of the epigenetic machinery? And what, and what are some of the symptoms of these disorders? Are they, are they common? Uh, do they have a similar syndromic presentation, common sets of symptoms, or do they vary? So what's very interesting about the Mendelian disorders of the epigenetic machinery is that each and every one is individually rare. So they can range from, again, things like CAT6A syndrome that have only a few hundred cases known in the world to something like Kabuki syndrome that it occurs in about one in every 32,000 or so live births. However, collectively, as a whole group, Mendelian disorders of the epigenetic machinery are estimated to encompass about 40% of the genetic intellectual disability syndromes that we discussed earlier. And so together, these are a huge cause of syndromic or genetic intellectual disability. They share this neurodevelopmental disabilities presentation showing that these epigenetic proteins are incredibly important for the function of the brain. They are different in their specific syndromes from their cognitive presentations and profiles to the other organ systems that are involved, but they almost universally affect the brain and cognition and neurodevelopment. That 40% number that that's that's really fascinating. It's only in recent years that we've come to understand that proportion of uh, intellectual and developmental disability being attributed to this kind, this family of diseases and mechanisms. Could you just speak a little bit to that? The what the journey has been like to understand the contribution of this this kind of mechanism for genetic disease how we've learned about them over the past, say, 10, 15, 20 years. Absolutely. It parallels the journey we've been on in genetics in general, where 
a couple decades ago, we were really focused on just finding genes and identifying genes that caused different things. So we had this explosion of genes that cause autism, genes that cause intellectual disability, et cetera. But nobody knew much about the proteins that those genes made and how they actually function. Now, while we continue to discover more and more genes that do cause these neurodevelopmental disabilities, we're starting to delve deeper and learn more about what these genes and the subsequent proteins created actually do. And one of the patterns that is emerging is that epigenetic functions, which again means proteins that affect the ability of other genes to be made into proteins and then carry out those functions are incredibly important in the nervous system. They're important for many areas of the body, which is why these syndromes tend to have many organ systems involved. But in particular, the nervous system is extremely sensitive to these proteins. In addition, something that we are learning is that these proteins have what we call dose dependence, meaning there are many diseases in which even if you just have a little bit of the protein, it's still enough to be able to carry out the functions and be able to, uh, the person can carry out their normal day-to-day functions and the brain works appropriately. In these particular syndromes, that's not the case. You need a hundred percent contribution of what you're supposed to have as far as the protein dose, not too much and not too little in order to have normal brain function. So let's dive into CAT6A. How does this particular disorder, you said you, you told us that it's only several hundred that have been identified worldwide. How does this disorder show up in children? How is it most commonly diagnosed at this point? So CAT6A syndrome is almost universally diagnosed by genetic testing. While there are many symptoms that uh, you can see over and over again in the children with CAT6A syndrome, they still are broad as far as many other syndromes can cause some of these same presentations. And so it really requires broad genetic testing, usually a test called whole exome sequencing that results in the diagnosis of this condition. And what you see is that these children are affected from birth. They are born quite low with low muscle tone or hypotonia. And then early on, you generally see significant delay in development of all the developmental milestones that you would expect a child to have. Later on, as the children get older, one thing that is unique and interesting about CAT6A syndrome is they have a specific significant deficit in language as compared to all their other developmental skills. So while they are globally delayed, meaning the developmental skills are behind across the board, their language is much, much, much more impacted. And so for these reasons, having a diagnosis of CAT6A is actually very important, even though the symptoms are only currently treated with therapy modalities and educational uh, accommodations, it's very important to know you have CAT6A because then we can very early on start to institute other modalities of communication beyond speech to enable these kids to thrive in their environments. You know, we've been just throwing out the, the name of the 
diagnosis CAT6A, we, we haven't actually said why it's called CAT6A. And by the way, it's capital K, capital A, capital T, 6A, not cat like the, the house pet. So can you just tell us where does that name come from? It's kind of jargony, but what does it mean? Absolutely. So the K is the protein symbol for lysine, which is one of the amino acids in uh, or the building blocks of proteins. AT stands for acetyltransferase. And then 6A is just the designation that it is the number 6A uh, lysine acetyltransferase. And that name gets back to that Mendelian disorders of the epigenetic machinery again. So CAT6A is a protein that places acetyl groups on another type of protein called histones. Histones are what wrap the DNA and make it able to open and close and therefore available for making proteins. So the lysine acetyltransferase protein places these acetyl marks on the histones thus enabling the DNA wrapped around the histones to be available for making proteins. When you have CAT6A syndrome, you lose one copy of this protein that places these acetyl transfer marks, and that has significant effects on the whole body and especially the brain, thus causing CAT6A syndrome. So Jackie, in your lab, what are the questions that you're trying to answer about this disorder or, or perhaps about Dis disorders like CAT6A, these epigenetic machinery-related disorders, what are you trying to, to tackle in your own work? So one thing that's very interesting about these epigenetic disorders is that, like we said, there's a dose dependence to it, and these proteins all exist in a very delicate balance with each other. And so because of that, there may be ways in which treatments or interventions can affect this dance or this balance between the epigenetic proteins, even if the protein or the gene remains broken or changed from what we would expect. And because of this, this makes these disorders potentially treatable, including the neurologic manifestations of these disorders. And so I have many colleagues and collaborators who work on discovering these treatments. And at the same time, my lab works on understanding in depth the cognitive and behavioral and developmental phenotypes or presentations of these disorders, CAT6A and related disorders, so that when it comes time to test the interventions that my colleagues work on, that we are ready to go for clinical trials in these potentially treatable conditions. The other thing that my lab works on is understanding overlap between the different Mendelian disorders of the epigenetic machinery. Because as we said, CAT6A is exceedingly rare, for example. It's hard to do a clinical trial in something that only 350 people in the world have. But it's a lot easier if you can combine disorders that have both molecular or genetic similarities, as well as similar presentations or symptoms that the patients have. And these could potentially be enrolled in a clinical trial together and share the same potential treatments. Just one more question before we turn our attention to, uh, to Abby. Your expertise in this area is, is clear. 
I just want to make sure that everybody understands that, that you are a, a pediatric neurologist seeing patients, and it's an important part of your 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 day to day. The research is key, but so is your clinical service. So, can you just comment on, from your perspective as a treating physician, what kind of impact do you see does having a child with with this kind of disorder have on both the the child experiencing it as well as the family? I would call it an all-encompassing experience and an all-encompassing experience for both better and worse. So for example, these children have multiple what we call comorbidities or other issues beyond just, for example, their neurodevelopmental presentation. So kids with CAT6A syndrome, as an example, often have heart issues. They often have vision issues. They have significant feeding NGI issues almost universally as a part of their presentation. Their neurodevelopmental issues are complex. They have sleep issues. They have the severe speech issues that we discussed earlier and the low muscle tone that makes their physical capabilities more difficult. So this affects what they're able to do in school. This affects what they're able to do uh, around the house and how they're able to take care of themselves. It affects how they interact with other children. At the same time, when you have a child who has these impairments and it, it you often get focused on it, small victories are incredibly also all-encompassing. So things that uh, many parents might take for granted when you see it in a child who has CAT6A syndrome, for example, is really, really exciting and something to be celebrated. And uh, as I believe uh, Ms. Tower is going to tell you about, these kids are in many ways, just joys to be around and they are lights of their family. And so both from a difficulty standpoint, as well as a joy standpoint, these are truly all encompassing conditions for not just the patient, but their entire family and caregiver support network. Abby, could you tell us a bit about your daughter, Bay? So Bay is the oldest of three. She um, diagnosed with CAT6A when she was eight months old. We knew from birth that there was something off. Um, we knew she had a heart defect prenatally, but um, after birth, clearly, you know, she had multiple medical issues, as Dr. Harrison said, like the low tone, um, amongst others. She was dependent on oxygen for quite some time. The feeding difficulties that Dr. Harris spoke of were definitely um, evident. For, for, for Bay, she wasn't able to take by mouth enough nutrition, so automatically had a feeding tube um, and a lot of other like medical issues that we didn't have answers to as to why or actually what was going on. So she ended up in the hospital for eight weeks before going home and ultimately ended up with a feeding tube due to uh, the significant feeding issues. She... We, she was diagnosed with CAT6A through the whole exome sequencing at, what, eight months old. So I think we were number 67 at that point. So that's showing you how the uh, CAT6, CAT6A community has grown to around 300 at this point. With CAT6A being such a rare diagnosis and, and Bay being number 67, as you just pointed out, have you been able to connect with other families with with the same diagnosis or maybe related diagnoses 
How have you been able to learn more about CAT6A, uh, perhaps through this kind of connectivity with others? There is a wonderful support group um, on Facebook of the CAT6A families. I think the day that we got diagnosed, you went home and went, you know, searching for CAT6A on the uh, world of Facebook and found the group. And it's a group of amazing people um, who know all things Cat 6A as far as what families go through and what they know, you know, challenges, the struggles, like found a whole bunch of people who had um, kids just like mine, struggles exactly, you know, a lot like mine. You know, you saw the it's a huge spectrum of symptoms as, you know, very significant, severe symptoms to um, pretty high functioning as well. So it can be an encouragement to families, you know, down the road. Um, as far as when your child gets older, you know, this is what life looks like for this family. Cause typically in cat six, a, the first three years, the first year is just very tough. A lot of medical challenges, the feeding, the sleep issues, Dr. Harris talked about, you know, and the medical complexities and, you know, just figuring out how to deal with them and how, you know, what physicians to see, what specialties to plug into, um, is just a lot and overwhelming and developmentally the delays as far as even like rolling over or sitting up or crawling or walking is just really tough and a lot to work through through the various therapies and then at home as well. So the, these family networks really matter immensely. Um, they do. And actually, uh, we're on about to have number four of our cat six, eight conferences where, you know, families can actually in person physically meet, you know, we actually have a cat six, eight um, families map throughout the world that someone keeps up with. So, you know, sometimes when people are in town to see Dr. Harris, I've had the opportunity to meet those families because I'm since we're local. So that's been really, really great opportunity you know there's another family in west virginia who um has a child just about the same age as bay and it's very much like them and i was the first cat 60 family that they had met and it was just awesome you know if you've never met anyone else you know with cat 6a in person can you take us through what a what a sort of a typical day is like for you and bay maybe that includes school or therapies what does it look like sure um Bay, um, Monday through Friday, school days goes to a public school. So in the morning, can take she sleeps in an enclosed bed for her safety, for wandering and whatnot that can happen otherwise. So probably takes about half an hour, 45 minutes to actually have her wake up. Um, then getting her ready for school, you know, she can get dressed for the most part, but you're getting her clothes, handing them to her. She is not toilet trained as of yet and so there's that process as well so we give her she has a uh, a g-tube again gastrostomy tube that um she gets medications in through the in the morning she does not drink enough liquids so we support that with um water through her her feeding tube so um at that point after that she um gets on the bus and that takes her to school. She goes to a general education school, but she her classroom, she has a special education classroom um, separately housed in the school. They focus on 
functional learning. They have their their own curriculum modified. The students also participate in um, general education classes like specials like library and art. They play out on the playground with uh, the other general education students. From what I understand, the first grade class of girls seek out Bay <laughs> and play with her on the playground. And apparently she goes for like first first shift and second shift of, of uh, recess. <laughs> so, um, and then by like school's over at four, so she comes home on the bus as well. And then we just do our dinner routine and then more water, more medication by tube. She's just learning to chew solid food. So that's been a very long process. Um, so she's work, working on that. Um, as far as therapies, she goes to physical therapy and occupational therapy once a week. And she's doing speech therapy twice a week. Um, and we're just about to start another therapy as well, hippotherapy, which is on a horse. How would you characterize, uh, in, in real terms, what you think are Bay's most significant challenges now and how you anticipate her pathway forward? So most significant challenges, language, communication, um, but also in her education, um, unlocking how to teach her and help her excel um, in academics and life skills to you know, help her develop to the best of her potential. I think when you have a nonverbal child, it's difficult to, or even a nonverbal child with intellectual disability, it's, I think, takes a whole lot to figure out how to access teaching them in the proper way. Absolutely. So this, this concept of unlocking and, and all those clinicians that you're working with, their, their task in, and, their, and teachers in tandem with you mm -hmm. is to find that way in yes. to unlock mm -hmm. her specific uh, uh, an approach to, to education and communication that will work for Bay. Uh, well said. That's how we see it as well, certainly. And so the, the flip is that there are, for those of you listening in, uh, we are looking at each other on camera. So what I see is, is a smiling and really social little girl looking back at me, which is just a delight. I wish you all could see it. Abby, are there particular moments when you've been the most proud of Bay? Or what, what are those moments like? And how would, you, how would you characterize how the way she handles her challenges, how that makes you, you feel pride? She's like the hardest worker I know. And she's like just a kid. <laughs> Um, she has neurotypical siblings, so you see them meet milestones. And you know, for us, when Bay has met mile reached milestones, it's typically epic. You know, she worked hard to get there, and she's just you know really does it with a smile. As she gets older, I know like she knows the significance of what she's doing, like what she's done. You know, and I think just she lights up and like you can just see it in her, you know, she understands and that she knows she's been working hard and like this thing that she's obtained, this skill or, you know. What would you say are your your hopes for the CAT 6A research that Dr. Harris and her team and, and others who are working in this space, what, what are your hopes for, for what they are going to be able to accomplish? 
some available treatment that could help improve the quality of our kids' lives. Life is hard for Bay. Life is hard with Cat 6A. You know, even like anything improved either for the kids, for the adults with Cat 6A, it would just be amazing. The research piece of this for precisely that reason is so important. So I'll, I'll turn it back to you, Jackie. So what do you see are the biggest challenges or obstacles for you and your research? So if, for example, if someone listening wants to help families like Bayes, what, what can they do? So one of the biggest challenges when you study rare disease is right there that the diseases are incredibly rare. And so with 350 families across the world trying to learn about this disorder and how it affects everyone and how we can treat it is challenging. And so what we really need is more awareness so that people who hear about this know what it is and know, even if not specifically about CAT6A, about the idea of rare diseases that cause neurodevelopmental disabilities and how important it is to treat them, how this can be a window into understanding neurodevelopment in everybody, how understanding how one specific genetic change can totally upend the neurologic development of a person, helps us understand how we all function and how we all can optimize our brains. And so what's needed is funding in all phases of everything. We need funding for the research itself. Uh, research tests and materials are expensive. We need funding for the families. If there's only 350 of them and some of them are in Europe, in Australia, in Africa, we need to get these families somehow to Baltimore, whether that's virtually, whether that's in person, whatever that means, we need to figure out how to do that. And all of that takes funding um, and awareness builds funding. So doing events, doing walks, things like that can really, really help increase the awareness and then eventually increase that funding. And then in general, one of the biggest things is just a general awareness, understanding, and compassion and empathy for people with neurodevelopmental disabilities. And neurodevelopmental disabilities from everyone who has, you know, a more mild neurodevelopmental disability, like someone, uh, you know, someone more high functioning on the autism spectrum, to someone who has some more severe impairments like Miss Bay, who is as wonderful and as delightful as you could ever be. And as mom said, has kids seek her out on the playground to play with her, but isn't going to be able to talk to her friends, isn't going to be able to communicate with them in the typical manner. And so having your family, your children, everyone around you have a better understanding of how to communicate with, how to be comfortable around people with different levels of neurodevelopmental disabilities is something we all can do and is incredibly important. That is a great point to end on. I want to thank our guests, Dr. Jackie Harris, Ms. Abby Tower, and Ms. Bay Tower. And to our listeners, we hope that you found this information helpful and interesting and that you'll tell your friends and family about our podcast and rate us if you're so inclined. Please check out our entire library of topics on Your Child's Brain at wypr.org, kennedykrieger.org, ypr.org slash studios, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
You've been listening to Your Child's Brain. Your Child's Brain is produced by Kennedy Krieger Institute with assistance from WYPR and producer Spencer Bryant. Please join us next time as we examine the mysteries of your child's brain.